Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, once again, the winning streak continues. I love this conversation. We get to hear from one of our most requested guests over the years, Justin Curry, frontman for that fantastic Scottish band, Delamitri. So, I think everyone pretty much knows Delamitri, well, everyone knows Delamitri from Roll With Me, which was their number 10 hit, hit I believe, in 1995. But that was off like their, what, fourth album, I want to say? They had been around for like a decade before that and were slowly sort of honing and revising and improving their sound as they went along. Justin is one of the greatest songwriters and lyricists ever, ever. And those of you who know, know what I'm talking about. He has such a, a, a talent for turning a phrase, for being clever, but also really emotive and sincere, just getting right to the heart of it all. I love it. Well, Delamitri kind of broke, they didn't uh, didn't break up, but they stopped doing their thing years ago. And they just released their first album in almost 20 years, I believe, called Fatal Mistakes. And it is fantastic. It's beautiful. There's a lot of great songs on it we discuss in here. And we get into like the whole, I mean, this is really kind of like a conversation you might hear on the Soda Jerker podcast. He gets really into like the, the process of writing songs and other people's songs and what he thinks of it and what he takes from them and adds to his own arsenal of talent. It's fascinating. He's also a bit of a muso. So at the end and along the way, really, we talk about other artists that we like and people that remind me of him and what kind of effect, if any, they had on him. So the Beatles come up, Nick Cave, Trash Can Sinatra, Simple Minds, of course, all the great Scottish bands. So anyway, I think you guys are going to love this. I don't know why you wouldn't. And please check out Fatal Mistakes. It is so fantastic. And if you don't, I don't know, if you're new to them or all you know is Roll to Me, hopefully some of you recognize this song right here, The Last to Know. Um, I I would have played Roll to Me here, but Roll to Me is barely two minutes long. I didn't think I'd have enough time to get the intro out and uh, play a little bit of the tune. So anyway, you get to hear Always the Last to Know. Anyway, we love Justin around here. We're so grateful, all of you that have been requesting him all this time. He's the best. He drove me from his home in Glasgow. So I want to tell you, like I said, we've been doing the podcast for six years, and you are by far one of our most requested guests. Hi. And and uh, I've, been, I've reached out, like I emailed the band website sometimes or your personal website sometimes and I never hear back and so I've had I've had this impression that you don't like interviews and maybe you're a little prickly or something but I hear no, from no, people who are really who say you're a really nice guy so I'm kind of I haven't I haven't been on my personal website in about four years I do, I only <laughs> interact with social media when I've got something to sort of uh, blog about which uh-huh. is really when, when I'm on the road and I'm looking out of a van window and I'm seeing trees <laughs> and things because otherwise I've got nothing to say. So right. I just don't interact. Right, right. Um, it's interesting that you worded that way, something to say, because when I, not to get too serious too quickly here, but when I, I've been obviously listening back to as much of your stuff as I can get my hands on to get ready to talk to you. And I think of you as somebody who has perfect things to say and uh, says them beautifully, better than most people who have ever lived. Well, you try and put, I mean, the reason you write songs is that they're, uh, that's the only way you can a lot of the time express nuanced and complicated emotions and 
ideas and stories that if you're as inarticulate as me in normal daily speech, you can't. So that I think that's why you end up in, in uh, writing songs. And also songs can be ambiguous in the way that it's quite hard to be ambiguous when you're talking to somebody in a pub or something. It's, it's all kind of black and white. So it's hard to be nuanced, but you can be kind of cleverer in songs. So, yeah, I think that's why most of us do it, because we're not, because we're stupid. <laughs> I don't know about that. Because clever is something you definitely have down pat. In fact, I was wondering, there is, um, I wondered what came first for you if when you were a kid, if you gravitated toward the pen or the guitar, because it seems like you could have just as easily thought of yourself as like a poet, you know? There are a lot of songs, especially like the new uh, Close Your Eyes and Dream of England. You know, it sounds to me like that could have come from a poet, poem that you would have written at some point. I think a lot of songwriters probably start out writing poetry in their early teens, you know, like when you're 13 or something. But poetry is hard. It's yeah. really hard to be a good poet. And I, I've read a lot of bad poetry and I'm, 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 I'm one of those people. So, and then I think, you know, if you discover rock and roll, in my, in my case, I kind of discovered, I mean, I was really into music when I was really young. I was into kind of pop music and I really loved the Beatles. And I got into Dylan really young as well, which is probably quite significant in terms of what you're saying. But what really got me thinking, oh, I could be in a band, was punk rock and post-punk, because it just made it really accessible. And I couldn't play anything. I couldn't play piano. I couldn't play guitar or anything. And then immediately you would, I was sort of looking at my poems going, okay, they're not very good, but if I strum this acoustic guitar that I borrowed off my dad's friend, which only got two strings on it, and I put a simplified version of that together oh it could be a punk song so you know that's kind of where it where it comes from and it, and then I think because I gave up the poetry nonsense the early Delamitri songs had so many words in them because oh. there were just loads of teenage angst and and mad ideas going around your brain and we used to just try and just get them all into every song <laughs> it's just utter madness and I've still not really learned the art of writing a, a deceptively simple song, like a really simple love song or a oh, really simple prose. 100% disagree with that. I, I, I don't think I, I, don't think yeah. I have. And, I, and that, I mean, that's kind of why I still write songs because I'm just waiting for that day where I go, look, that's, that's as good as yesterday. I give up. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. I've got, okay. So th th I've got a million tangents to break off from everything you just said. First of all, yes. That first Delamitri album from 85, 
is so odd. And you're right. It sounds like a guy who's trying to pack every interesting idea he has into yeah. three-minute songs. Like it or not, you'll see my face soon. I'll force my way up into your room. The things I say will soon make you swoon. I'll point to the sun and say it's the moon. I'm getting your life yet Make you sit back and enjoy the touch of a boy Lie over, relax with your hands in your lap Just give me some time so I can work on your But the follow-up, Waking Hours, is so refined and polished. And I was I was just dying to know what happened in those four years that you went from this over-eager, yeah. zealous kid to the guy who wrote these other great songs. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a mystery. Uh, I mean, I mean, partly we grew up a bit, and certainly I grew up a bit. I mean, when we, that Christmas album, when we signed to the label, I was 19 because I turned 20 when we were recording it. So yeah, I must have been 19 when we, when we were signed. Uh, and you know, I was still a virgin. I mean, I didn't know anything. I did not know anything. Uh, and then we got kind of mauled a bit for the music business, for want of a better expression. The Christmas experience was pretty ugly. Uh, and then we went to the States with no money in 1986 and, and stayed with fans, parents, people that had written to our information address on the back of the first album. Uh, and that was a life-changing experience for two reasons. One, it was kind of character forming because we were so, I mean, it wasn't that we were poor, we just had no money, you know. Yeah. Uh, and we were sleeping on the roadside, we were sleeping in the van. And when we were in towns where fans had put gigs on for us, we were sleeping in, in, in people's spare bedrooms, which was a luxury, let me tell you. Mm. Uh, but what the other thing that the, the, the United States changed was we would go into these college radio stations where they were playing like maybe... Smith's records and and kind of Scottish indie music and they were playing our records but you'd speak to the DJs and the DJs would have a really really broad taste in music and in the way that people just didn't hear you know you you only if you were a punk you could only really listen to certain things you know you couldn't listen to the electric light orchestra or you couldn't even listen to Tom Petty really you know I mean you sort of could so we found that really liberating that people in America, they would listen to us and they would listen to the Smiths or R.E.M. or something, but they might also listen to like ABBA and mm. and hard rock, you know. And so we found that it was liberating and it was quite exciting. And also playing to the audiences in the States in 1986, you know, we would have little fiddly bits in between the lyrics and we didn't realise that they were guitar solos, but they were being received as guitar solos by the American audience. And that kind of made us go, oh, this is kind of entertainment, you know. So I think we just chilled out a lot. And then 
when we came back from the States, we decided not to write as a band, but to write individually. So Ian would write songs individually, either riffs or complete new song, you know, songs without lyrics. And I would write songs on my own. And that just, we started wandering into a bit more of a mainstream sort of territory, just by nature of the fact that uh, we, we weren't writing completely as a group. I mean, you know, you've got a picture of Epic and the Bunnymen behind you. I mean, they, they used to, well, a lot of their songs were written four ways, you know, and it's hard work doing that because you you have to spend hours and days and weeks jamming out ideas and then putting one idea with idea A with idea B and then a middle bit from idea C, which happened four weeks ago, and then you crush them together and then you put a lyric over them. And that's, I mean, it's a, it's a way of writing songs that can lead to quite original results, but it's really hard work. So we kind of abandoned the originality for the sake of, efficiency and and we just weren't ashamed to be listening to american music listening to country and western music and listening to rock music uh, which we had been a bit ashamed of before because we were an indie band you know right right i'm curious who when you went on those because i've heard stories about that that first american tour and sleeping on fans floors and stuff like that who did you tour with are you opening for somebody we would know no no what, what we did was our manager barbara shores at the time who was from california she had this sort of dream to take a band to America based on a fan network. So she was really diligent in writing to the fans and getting us to write to the fans. So anybody that wrote to us, uh, she would write back to some of them and then she would divide the, the other letters or, or respondents into four, or correspondents into four, and each member of the band would write individually to these people. And we were sort of grooming these people to help us, you know. It was quite, uh, quite deliberate, but... I mean, I think I think this could only happen in the States because what we found when we got there was just this immense sort of generosity. And, you know, these these fans, mainly their parents who were putting us up, it was kind of like a sort of cultural exchange, you know, like people at school going to Italy for six months or something. Mm -hmm. So we would do little shows in, in the living room for their parents' friends and things, and it was all... They just loved it. You know, we're like, you're feeding us. I mean, you're, yeah. you're, you're feeding us. And, you know, the fans would print T-shirts and they would put gigs on. So it was it was a headline tour. Um, wow. Uh, but, I mean, so, you know, some of the gigs, there was only 100 people. Uh -huh. Other gigs, you know, were a lot busier. And it was all predicated on the first gig in New York. We were, um, a guy called Tim Hayland, I think his name was, he lived in uh, Jersey Heights in a tiny little apartment that was like, 15 of us in this and sleeping in his living room floor the poor guy nearly, nearly had a nervous breakdown but the first guy he put he booked uh for i think for a birthday party he booked maxwell's in hoboken in new jersey and he was going to sell 200 tickets at 20 dollars a head and we were going to take that money and use it to fund the rest of the tour which was kind of feasible but he only <laughs> he obviously didn't have that many friends because he only sold like 70 tickets so then we had to kind of borrow a van and it was it was just completely nuts. Uh -huh. Yeah, totally nuts. Yeah. So, yeah, we were, I mean, technically we were headlining, but, you know, we were just playing in bars and restaurants and record shops. You know, we weren't, yeah. there was, we played in maybe three or four clubs. Uh, in fact, in Milwaukee, we did, we, we were, we were third on the bill. And we did three gigs in Milwaukee. We did, I think we did a record shop. We did a little club on our, I think we headlined it with, with, uh, with our friend Bobby Tanzel's um, band. And then I think we did, yeah, we did a, a third on the bill thing at quite a big club, which was utterly horrific. Somebody got shot outside while we were trying to get the gear out. Oh, no way. 
<laughs> and we tried to get the gear out, and there was police tape everywhere. It was like, can we get our gear in the van? No, somebody's been shot. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> and, you know, it's all, uh, it's all part of life's rich chapters. Sure, sure. I wondered, too, and I hope this isn't too reductive or anything. I wondered if... So, one of my other favorite bands ever is the trash can Sinatra's. Yeah. And they, to me, have a real way with words as well. John and Frank yeah. can yeah. Are, talk about clever and, you know, unique yeah. ways of spinning a yarn and making you look at something. And I wondered, first of all, I'm curious if you two know each other, like each other, respect each other. Yeah. Okay. And then is there something about being Scottish or is there something about coming up with groups like Orange Juice or, the Triffids or, yeah, you know, yeah. a Teenage Fan Club that inspires yeah. this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, Teenage Fan Club were, were kind of like the sort of half a generation after us in the trash cans, but okay. Orange Juice was just an enormous thing. You know, this Glasgow-based band that dressed in this quite, for the time, you know, quite elaborate, quite dangerous way because they, in, in a really tough, very machismo fuel town like Glasgow, these guys would walk around with like quiffs and fringes and riding boots, you know, looking super cool and playing this really cool brand of what was effectively post-punk music, but it, it wasn't industrial post-punk. It was this kind of melodic, very soulful um, music, guitar music. But also, you know, Edmund's lyrics and James Kirk's lyrics as well are very odd. I mean, I don't really think you'd have got Morrissey without without something like Orange Juice. So Orange Juice was just a massive thing. So I'm sure that was, I know it was a huge catalyst for us and I'm sure it would have been for the trash cans as well. Mm -hmm. But we didn't really know about the trash cans until we started going to the States and seeing their videos on MTV and things because they were based in Kilmarnock, which is, you know, like 30 miles from Glasgow or 20 miles from Glasgow. They had a, they, they bought a, an old 70s recording studio called Sirocco, which used to have carpets on the walls. It was incredible. But they bought it and turned it into, uh, and re rechristened it Shabby Road, which we Shabby thought was Road. totally brilliant. That's right. And they, they, actually, they actually lived the kind of Beatles lifestyle in that they bought, or no, they rented two apartments in Kilmarnock on the top floor of some tenement. And like three of them lived in one flat and then across the landing, the other two lived in the other flat. <laughs> I thought that was totally brilliant. Right. Yeah. I wondered if you two just, uh, if you guys uh, influenced each other. Uh, one more that, and this might be a huge stretch. I don't know. But when I listen to a song and you've done this a couple of times, but when I listen to something on the new album, like No Surrender yeah. or Nation of Caners, I hear a little bit of something like Nick Cave. We're a nation of caners, excuses, explainers. We're wasting away every night, every day. Assuring ourselves we're blameless of everything heading their way. We use and we use, throw away and away. Cane in the plains, plain in the cane. Jet in the snuff and snuff in the pain. Nothing's enough, nothing's enough. A sniff on a cough and a fact to a flame. Down in the foam and filling the drain. Ravenous men, ravenous girls. Ravage it all until nothing remains. Blue yonder, the wonder of getting beyond the pale. Slipping out of the jail. Plunder, 
sometimes closes out his albums with these long rambling um yeah. you know just i don't know exorcisms of lyrics and i wondered if that's an influence on you too yeah i mean nick, i go into nick cave a bit late i kind of go into him in the 90s i mean i'm a huge nick cave fan i mean kind of who isn't really but i mean those sort of streams of you know lyrics tumbling out in a kind of cataract mainly comes from Dylan. It mainly comes from being obsessed by It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding from the age of 11. I was just mad about that song. And The Gates of Eden, you know, I was just crazy about that album. And then later on, No Surrender was probably quite influenced by the first Streets album, uh, which is a kind of garage really? kind of hip-hop album. Yeah. And I was really, in, really into that record. In fact, recently I, I heard... Um, the song Turn the Page, and I thought, you know, that must have been quite a, an influence. And uh, my girlfriend as well, is, she's really into hip-hop, and I, I was listening to, through her, I was listening to much more hip-hop than I normally would, which made me think, right, if you've got a simple chord sequence, you can just drive a song purely with the lyrics, you know, it doesn't really have to have that much that much melody. So, yeah, I kind of wrote a couple of, a couple of things in that vein. Um, but, I mean, things like Nothing Ever Happens, which is very sort of lyrically busy, and um, I think that just comes from Dylan, really. Post office clocks put up signs saying position closed. And secretaries turn off typewriters and put on their coats. And janitors padlock the gates for security guards to patrol. And bachelors phone up their friends for a drink While the married ones turn on a chat show And they'll all be lonely tonight and lonely tomorrow Gentlemen, time please, you know we can't serve anymore Now the traffic lights change to stop when there's nothing to go and by five o'clock everything's dead And every third car is a cab And ignorant people sleep in their beds Like the dope white mice in the college lab And nothing ever happens Nothing happens at all The needle returns to the start of the song And we all sing along like before And we'll all be Tonight and lonely tomorrow. Telephone exchanges click while there's nobody there. What about Nation of Caners? I don't even know what a caner is, but I love listening to you go off on it. <laughs> a caner is uh, I like somebody who likes to party. Okay, it's like somebody who 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 hits the drink and drugs really hard and goes yeah. for it 100 miles an hour. You know. Okay. 
and I just kind of like the pun on, um, you know, cane, you know, actually the, 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 the plant, the, the, the stuff oh, that grows. So I, I kind of like the idea that um, we were, were sort of partying the earth to death. <laughs> ah, that's true. I speaking of girlfriends, speaking of girlfriends, yeah. I gotta know who broke your heart so badly that you went and made what is love for. What is love for? Does it wash good people ashore? Does it keep the world from the door? What is love for? And what does love do? Does it make life worth going through? Keep you safe from the suicide crew. What does love do? That album is unrelentingly sad and somber. And in fact, I was reading a review of it that I thought summed it up really nicely. The review said something like, it's as if McCartney made an album just of variations on my love, song My Love. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of true. You know, I could see that. Who hurt you, Justin? I'm not. I wouldn't reveal. I wouldn't reveal names. I mean, nobody. Nobody really hurt me. I just. Uh, that, that's. But it, it's a classic break. Not classic. Sorry, but it's a breakup album. You know. I mean, everybody writes a breakup album at some point. I mean, at that point, Delamitri had gone on hiatus. I'd come out of a seven-year uh, relationship, which which should have worked, and I'm not really sure why it didn't. Uh, and also, I was really thinking. If I'm going to make a solo record, it's got to be the, kind of the opposite of a band record. So it's got to be really personal and it should feel really autobiographical. And I was totally obsessed with a, a John Lennon and the Plastic Ono band record, which is like harrowingly yeah, personal, yeah. exactly personal. And, you know, every, you know, his, he's just stripped himself completely yes. bare in that record, uh, which is not, not something I really particularly want to do, but I like, I like the idea of that. So, I, that's why I kind of stuck on that first solo record. I stuck um, all those sort of really heavy kind of breakup songs on it, and also there was no commercial imperative. I didn't, mm. I didn't have to get on the radio. I just wanted to make a, a, a solo record that was sufficiently different from Delamitri that would have some kind of character. In yeah. fact, our our Arman, who I really trust, when I played him the record, he said, "Justin, you know this is commercial suicide, don't you?" And I was like, <laughs> "Yep, I do." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's great. Okay, so we got to talk about then you performing If I Ever Loved You and moving Chris Differ to tears. Baby, I was not the one I guess you know that now But I kept you real distracted for a while I look back and nothing much Ever come 
comes to mind Sometimes I can picture half a smile But we were thick as thieves Hung on each other's sleeves Kissing all the time But if I ever loved you Shouldn't I? Cracking up and drinking all the time. Yeah, if I ever loved you, how come I feel alright? How come the nights are so easy and the mornings look so bright? I try to figure what is gone. I seem to look the same. Maybe there's a tightness around my eyes Sometimes the evening comes I think I miss someone And then I realize That if I ever loved you Shouldn't I be crying? Shouldn't I be cracking up? Yeah, if I ever loved you, how come I feel alright? How come the nights are so easy and the mornings look so bright? First of all, it's a gorgeous song. In fact, when I listen to it, especially the version, the live version that is frankly more popular than that's been listened to more times on I know. YouTube than the regular version yeah. has. I keep waiting for there to be a spin, kind of like at the end of Always the Last to Know, that there's a yeah. there's a twist yeah. to the story, but there's not. And I, I deliberately just, didn't do that on that song. I, okay. I wanted to leave it re- I wanted to leave it really ambiguous. So I wanted the audience to think, is this guy utterly heartless or is he in complete denial and he's a total mess? Okay. So I, I just wanted to leave that open. And what makes that interesting, it's quite a hard song to sing cause, just because of the key it's in. But what it makes, makes it interesting to sing is that you can sort of sing it both ways. So some nights you sing it and it's just, you're just thinking, God, this guy is a mess. You know, he's an <laughs> absolute, he's a puddle of, of tears, you know. Right. Uh, and then other nights you can sing it as a really kind of misogynistic, quite hateful sort of, sort of character, you know. Yeah. I haven't thought of that. You're right. Whenever I listen to that, I think, you know, there are millions of people out there who millions of coffee shop troubadours that can sit on a stool and strum an acoustic guitar. But there are only a chosen few that can move Chris Difford, one of the greatest songwriters (laughs) ever, to tears. And you are one of those people. Well, I was I was very honored to be working with him. I'm a massive, massive fan of Chris Difford's work. But he, he did warn me because we sat down, me and the producer, Mark Cooper, and Chris were sitting down at the venue, just at that table, deciding what the setlist would be, because it was it's a very fluid program, that songwriting circle. So I was saying, what do you want me to do? You know, I can sing that, I can sing that, you know, stuff that um, I would normally do in the piano, I could do guitar verses. And um, Mark Cooper, the producer, said, look, it would be really brilliant if you could do If I Ever Loved You, because I really like that song. And I said, yeah, I think I can do it on the guitar. Let me just work out. And then Chris said, if you play that song, I'll cry. And I was really? like, I just laughed. Yeah, I just laughed. Well, I think he'd just broken up with his girlfriend. Oh. And um, 
But I thought he was sort of joking, you know. Yeah. And and then I, when I finished the song and I looked around and he was crying or something, oh. I just burst out laughing. I felt really bad. Oh, dear. Oh, what a we, moment. <laughs> I, I mean, I uh, the song is so impactful and gorgeous. And watching this man, Chris, who I also admire so deeply, also be touched yeah. by it is uh that's an amazing moment yeah i was i was that was an amazing moment for me but being a typical scotsman i just burst out laughing okay i want to ask you about one or more of your solo songs i love falsetto i never liked your dad because he never loved the fact that you were you and you like to sing falsetto which real men shouldn't do I'm mumbling through the hills I can see him now About that nonsense out beside you As you try to find a way to sing That makes this thing about having faith in God and Jesus that would be enough talk of doing things through duty It's interesting you talk about, I would say your first solo album and the last solo album definitely sound like something that couldn't have been done in Delamitri. And yeah, the, yeah. the last one, especially to me, sounds like, I mean, a lot of it's like you and a drum machine, you know, or it yeah. sounds that way. Yeah. So yeah. tell me the story of Falsetto, because I love that song. Well, that was, in fact, that was the first song I wrote for that album. I, I really like that song. I'm really fond of it. Yeah. Um, and that was the first time it took myself away to write. So I rented a a house up in Skye, uh, off the northwest coast of Scotland. Uh, you know, pretty remote place. You know, just a couple of houses around. And I was really nervous because I was I booked three weeks in this house, and I'd never really done this before. I'd never just take myself away to specifically to write songs. And I kept kind of wandering from room to room, going, "Can I write here? Can I write here?" Because environment's so important, I think. And then eventually I decided which room I was going to base myself in. And then that song just came out really quickly. And I was like, God, that's pretty good. You know, the, the, the really good thing about going away and do, doing writing trips is that you just store stuff up. So that was really just a scene from my friend's father's funeral and um, where it became perfectly obvious to me that, that nobody liked this guy that died, mm. that he was obviously not a nice man, you know. Really? Um, and that had just been brewing in, in my head for like six months or something. And you find when you've when you've got nothing to do, no TV, no internet, you're in the wilds. It's raining every day. You're surrounded by hills. Um, all these things just come to the, into your forebrain or something. Mm -hmm. uh, and I find that quite a good way of writing because you're you've a you've got to write, and b you can just let stuff that's been swimming swimming about come out. 
Whereas if you try and do that as you go along, you know, if, I, if I'd come back from that funeral and tried to write a song about it that day, it would have been, I think there'd been something a bit ingenuine about it or something, you know? So, oh, I'll write about that today, you know? Mm-hmm. So I've, I've gone to this habit now of just, I write very little at home and then just after, when I feel sort of pregnant with enough ideas, I just book a, book a holiday home somewhere and just yeah. sit in the kitchen and just write as much as I can. I love it. So who is it that's singing? I wondered if you were singing about a person and I'm not smart enough to read between the lines. Someone I would know. Uh, I'm thinking, well, Barry Gibb sings in falsetto. Does this have something to do with Barry Gibb? I couldn't figure no, it out. It's, it's based on the fact that my, my friend whose father's funeral it was, he is a really good singer. and uh, But obviously I had a really bad relationship with his father. And uh, he, he's got a great falsetto, you know, a, a really beautiful falsetto. He's done backing vocals with a few bands in Glasgow. And he, he made his own record a few years ago, which is really great. And it kind of occurred to me that, that, that his father would really hate that. Mm. And there was something kind of anti, you know, anti-church about it or something. It's not the sort of godly thing, singing high like a woman, you know. Not masculine <laughs> enough. Not patriarchal yeah. enough. Yeah. 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 Ideas or thoughts on Jesus or God pop up periodically in yeah. some of your songs. Where do you stand spiritually? Are you even comfortable answering that question? Yeah, no, I'm a, I've always been an atheist and uh, I'm not a sort of radical atheist in that I don't have a huge, I don't have a huge problem with people being spiritual and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think all organised religions are, are just cults designed to uh, accrue money and power. But I don't, have, I don't have any problem with people having what I, I regard as superstitious beliefs. I mean, my father was from a very extremely religious family, a Calvinistic. A group called the Plymouth Brethren who are very very strict mm. uh, and he was he was an atheist but he had a, a really healthy respect for for Christian inspired music you know whether it was Bach or, or Mozart or whatever and in fact he made a career out of um, yeah, as a chorus master conducting choirs doing a lot of stuff which is like really heavily influenced by Jesus and God yeah. you know but also I've, I've always found the word Jesus a great it's just great to sing it's just got a great ring to it I mean I love that song Jesus by the Velvet Underground uh, yeah. and it's just I mean because it's also a swear word you know <laughs> so it's, it's like the name it's the name of this historical religious character but it's, it's also an, an oath so yes. it's, it's just great it's great to sing <laughs> yes I love it it's funny you say that I'm looking at the lyrics right here Jesus Jesus we need love because in the lack of it we fuck things up and Jesus, we can't have enough. I love that. And you saying that, it summarizes why a line like that means what it does and hits you with the impact that it does. I love that. Yeah, I was I was really pleased with that song when, when I finished it. I mean, I never, when, when we did the, ver- the, the version on um, Low Reaches that I did with Mike McCarthy, I, we never really got a, a decent version of it. But, I'm, but me and Stuart, the guitar player that played my solo tours, we did a couple of, sort of decent performances of it on that last American tour in 2014. So I feel like it's had some kind of life. But um, yeah, it's not, the, the, the album version's not, it's, it's, it wasn't quite what I wanted it to be. But look, you're, I mean, every time you make a record, there's always things you go, I could have done that a lot better, but there you go. So uh, it's interesting you mentioned that because I wanted to bring that up. I. Uh... To get ready to talk to you, I actually reached out to a friend of yours, Mike Gamal. Yeah. He had mentioned on a, another podcast a couple of years ago that I listened to, that was put on with some friends of mine, that there are a couple of songs that you have an issue with 
you don't like the way they turned out. And one is yeah. uh, Driving with the Brakes On. Yeah. I love that song. And another yeah. one is Here and Now. Let me just get you a light And if we had thought to listen We might have checked if the weather was right And I don't mind if you want to drive all day And hey, it's raining I should have brought my coat And sometimes I could sell my soul Just to sit and watch you smoke And I don't mind if you want to break my heart Cause you can't And I'm wondering what you would change about those things. No, I, I really love Here and Now. We, we, the Here and Now just was a real problem when we recorded it because we could just couldn't get the acoustic guitar to sound like it was in tune. And to this day, we're convinced the acoustic guitar is horrible out of tune. And the vocal, the way I pronounce the words on it is really mannered, you know? Let me just get you a light. It's kind of <laughs> weird. It's like it's like Dylan meets some some posh English aristocrat. I don't know what's going on there. I, I, I really love that recording. Driving through the long night Trying to figure who's right and who's wrong now the kid has gone I sit belted up tight and She sucks on a match light Blowing bronze Steering on And I might be more around If I stopped this in its tracks And said come on Let's go home But she's got the wheel And I've got nothing Except what I have on When you're driving with the brakes on When you're swimming with your boots on It's hard to say you love someone And it's hard to say you don't Trying to keep the mood right Trying My problem with driving the brakes on was that I just never got the vocal right and uh, 
uh, I wanted the vocal to be a lot more husky sounding. And also, Driving the Bass is a really odd song because it's just a big long line. It doesn't really go up or down. It just it's, it stays, the melody stays within the same four notes on the scale, uh, apart from the middle eight. And it, we, we really had to think about how to build it. And we tried all sorts of arrangements. And we ended up with a kind of really bog standard, what I would call bog standard Bruce Springsteen arrangement, where mm. you start with a side stick and then you go to the snare drum and then you build the snare, snare drum up. And it, we just never felt like we'd, we knew it was, we, we thought it was a good song. We just never thought we'd quite done a, a, a great version of it. And funnily enough, when people have tried to cover that song, they have the same problems, you know, mm. because it doesn't have, it doesn't have any inbuilt dynamics. It just starts and goes on, you know, mm. mm-hmm. um, it does, it, and it doesn't, the chorus is almost less intense than the verse. So it, mm. it's just, it's a bit of a, it's a kind of one of those dogs that you have to wrestle with to try and make work. And in fact, when we when I wrote that song, I took it into rehearsal and we just couldn't make it work. And Ian said, oh, this is not happening. So I'm fine. And we could stick on a B-side or something. And then about four months later, Ian phoned me out and said, remember that song, Driving the Brakes? And I was like, yeah. And he went, that's actually a really good song. So maybe we should have another go. And uh, we had another go. We, hey, we, we just never felt we got it right. Look, we had to put we had to put a synth pad on it. If you go put a synth pad on something, you know something's wrong. <laughs> oh, that's I feel bad for synth pads. Um, <laughs> that's great. Uh, so you okay? So it's funny you mentioned the middle eights because we have some Patreon supporters, and I yeah. let, I always let them know who I'm interviewing, and if they want to submit questions, they can. And mm-hmm. One of them came from Brian Morris, who's a gigantic fan of yours. He's one of these people who've been requesting you for a long time. He asked specifically about your ability to write a bridge. And he said one of his favorites is Baby I Survived. Baby, can't you cry? Or is she letting you? That eyelash in your eye Ain't what's upsetting you Though she's dead and out of sight She still throws your shoes across your room at night she still says you're cheap and in your sleep sets your sheets of light So baby don't you cry She ain't worth it and besides You're too old for lullabies So baby he wondered is that a conscious thing that you like i'm really good at writing the middle eights watch me or i don't know do you put extra attention on that where does it come from no i i I find chorus is really hard and i find pre-chorus is really hard i mean your classic song should be verse pre-chorus chorus verse pre-chorus chorus middle eight pre-chorus chorus out you know mm-hmm. and i can't really write pre-chorus they just don't come naturally to me so and i find choruses i mean i've i've thrown away so many songs because i can't find a chorus for them mm-hmm. 
But for some weird reason, the other bit that only happens once, usually sometimes it happens twice, uh, the bit that sort of explains what I'm on about, um, I don't think that always it always comes quite easy. I, mean, I suppose it comes quite easy because it's a bit you right last, so you sort of know what the song's doing, and you kind of it points which direction to go in for the other bit. But I think I think people like the Middle East so much because the the choruses just aren't the choruses aren't that strong, or they're overcomplicated, <laughs> or they don't. You know, I mean, a good chorus is just repeat two lines. You know, yeah. just do line A, line B, line A, line B out. You know, right. and what I'm terribly guilty of a lot as a writer is doing. I think Dylan does this a lot. I mean, I mean Dylan's so cunning though, but um, where you don't really write a chorus, you write a verse, and then you write a little bridgey bit. And then you just have your payoff line, which is usually the title, and that's the chorus, which is just one line. Mm-hmm. But it's not a sing-along thing, you know. And if you know, if you want to have hits and things, I don't really care about having hits. Mm-hmm. But if you want to have hits, you need a sing-along chorus. You need that thing that every, you can get straight away, and you hear it once, and you you can sing the same chorus, you know. And right. I find that I find that really hard because I've always got too fucking much to say, you know. It's like <laughs> I've got I've got more stuff I want to say, and it's right. the songs where. I think it's the songs where you just you don't have that much to say at all, and you just uh-huh. do it, and uh, you do it really quickly. Those are the things that tend to get on radio and become yeah. quite popular, you know. Okay, so we've now we then we have to talk about "Roll to Me" and "Twisted" then, because yeah. I'm curious. I I I know that a lot for thing for bands to become successful, doesn't matter how good they are or bad they are, they need a machine behind them deciding. We are going all in on making this band matter right now. Absolutely. And I'm wondering what happened to to Delamitri and you guys? Did you turn in Twisted and someone at the label thought, rolled me as a smash. We're going to put all our muscle behind making Delamitri a thing right now. Or was it a fluke? Because it almost never is a fluke. Effectively, yes. The decisions were obviously, obviously made. I mean, we'd had minor radio hits with uh, Kisses Saying Goodbye had been a sort of, it got played on quite a lot of radio stations in 1990 The last and no got much play. Um, but then, I knew it, so I think it did a little bit. I think partly what happened was we were we were quite happy to work, you know, we were quite happy to do the, the all that glad handing that that specifically the American music business requires. Uh, and we were sort of good at it, you know, we would go out and get drunk with these guys and have a laugh 
And we were young enough that we could do that and still do the gigs. So I think the guys out in the road who are, you know, to a woman and a man who were just great people to work with at AM, they were really refreshing people because they weren't pretentious and they, they knew the whole thing was about the game. And they would they would treat you, you know, if you if you did, you know, if if you did like 20 interviews for them and a meet and greet and all that sort of stuff, they would take you to the most fabulous restaurant and get you drunk and feed you marvelous food. So uh, right. we had a really good relationship with the people in the field. Uh, and they were, I think they were reporting back to uh, A&M and LA and going, look, you know, these guys are great to work with because we look, you know, we love working with, with uh, the people in the field. And then I think what happened was we put Here, Here Now came out as a single and it did sort of all right. I can't remember if it wrote, no, I think it wrote came out in the Meg before, as a single before it did in the UK. Something wrong and you can't put your finger on it Right then, roll to me And I don't think I have ever seen a soul so in despair So if you want to talk the night through, guess who will be there? So don't try to deny it, pretty baby You've been down so long you can hardly see when the engine stall and it won't stop raining, it's the right time to roll to me. But yeah, a, a decision was obviously made because all of a sudden there was like hundred thousand dollars to make a video, which was yeah. unusual for us. Usually, usually we just spent about forty thousand dollars, which was kind of an average budget in those days, believe it or not. So we made this very sort of poppy video, mm -hmm. and then what happened was, A and M were really working to death and spending a lot of money on it. They were flying us all over the place to do do pop radio stations and and uh, all sorts of radio stations, all sorts of formats. But then what happened was that pop radio just just went for it for two reasons one was they could get it in before the news because it's less than two minutes you know it's, it's just ridiculously short so they would it was a great fellow record for them but the other weird thing was it it researched really well so these radio stations they phone up um their audience mm -hmm. uh, which is usually women at home that's usually what it was in the 90s mm -hmm. and they would play five songs from the playlist and ask people at the end of the phone what they thought of them and the, the, these people in the phone kept going, no, I like that. Now, the really weird thing about that was it, you know, it was a top 10 record. It was a huge CHR record. It was on, on American radio for 10 years, you know. Yeah, yeah. But nobody knew who we were. Right. Because they, A, they never back announced anything. And B, it's, it's, it's just pop radio. You know, it's not yeah. like album-driven radio. Yeah. So it was kind of weird. It took us years to even get to like a million sales of Twisted. It probably took us 10 years, to get, you know, with a top 10 record. And yeah. in those days, you know, if, if you had a top 10 records that was all over the radio, you know, you were going to shift albums, you know. Mm -hmm. So it, it was quite odd because 
there was this perception in the UK that we were, that we'd broken America, which was just completely false. And we were, you know, because because like rock stations in Chicago had played other, you know, our, our other singles. We were quite big in Chicago and we were quite big in Minneapolis. So we played a couple of thousand people. We played 4,000 people in, in Chicago. But then we go to Milwaukee and we play to 300 people. Mm-hmm. And people have this perception that, hey, man, you know, you're huge. Like, no, no, we're not. Right. We're, sort of, we're, we're doing okay in Chicago and Minneapolis, but yeah. we're playing the Troubadour in LA, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I found all that really fascinating. And I found it really uh, entertaining because... You, you could be doing a really big gig, you know, one day and uh, and just doing a tiny little club the next day, which keeps it really interesting. You know, you okay. don't get... And, and we never got to the stage where we were, we were doing, like, arenas and all that sort of stuff. Even in the UK, we could have filled some of the smaller arenas, but we always refused to do them. So we always stayed in a sort of theatre club sort of world and really just and got by from songwriting royalties because we were getting played in the radio. So we're kind of, we're kind of slightly anomalous uh, yeah. journey that, that, that we had because we were successful in some ways, but in other ways we were just invisible, you know. Right, you know? I remember I mean, we, well. we, were, we, we were never famous, you know. We were, we were just, yeah. people knew those tunes in the UK and in the States. They knew those melodies and they knew those songs, but, you know, who are these guys? I, yeah. I, I thought they were Canadian, you know. Right. Right. There was a lot of that back then. Nineties, the nineties were real. They that was like the peak, one hit wonder period. Yeah. And, I, and um, you know, I th- I always think about bands like you or like a Fastball or yeah. New Radicals or yeah. Sean Mullins or these people that had that one gigantic song that everyone loved. But is yeah. it enough to pay the bills? 35 years later or whatever, 27 years later, whatever we are now. It can be. I mean, you know, it, okay. it, 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 I mean, Roll to Me bought us houses and kept the band going through the sort of more fallow years after um, some of the circus parades when we were just sitting about and not being able to get to the studio. So, yeah, and I mean, that, that's the, I mean, the reason why we've not had day jobs is, is really because of um, songwriting royalties, royalties via radio and, and TV, mainly radio, you know, yeah. and that, that's just sheer luck. Sheer luck and the extraordinary hard work of the the AM field operatives who are going to those radio stations and you know saying hey meet the guys mm-hmm. <laughs> they're from Scotland. <laughs> so i'm curious you've mentioned a few times on here when you feel like you know when you've nailed a song when you wrote rolled to me did you think oh this is going to be huge on the radio or do no. you just submit twisted and let the rec- the label do whatever they're going to do when i wrote yeah we do i mean we we, we didn't get involved in Single choices. We had a few big arguments with the AM about single choices, and AM were usually right and we were usually wrong. So we just stopped making the arguments. Our, our policy is don't put it on the record if you don't want it to be a hit because you don't know what's going to be a hit. Um, maybe somebody else does. But when a roll roll to me, to me, it sounded like something off from the first Delamitri album because it's really fast and really busy. I thought it was pretty throwaway, but I like the fact it was a wee bit Paul McCartney ish. And so that's why I got the Buckley amount to mix it hard left and right with it as a kind of Beatles mix. And then when we sequenced the album, Ian and I were humming and hawing about putting it on the album. But then when we decided to put the kind of big psychedelic rock song, um, Being Somebody Else at the end of side one, we tried to put other songs after that and they didn't work. How are you going? 
only thing that worked after that was rude to me because it just sounded like a bit of a joke. You know, it's like, hello, you know, that's a, there's a big bit of, you know, acid and mushrooms inspired right. weirdness. And now we've got, uh, and now we've got pop music, <laughs> which we, we thought was hilarious. Right. We didn't think it was a hit. We thought it might be the single, you know, and in the UK, it was like the third single or something. Mm. So it was, okay. it was a shock to us that it, that it, Got into American CHR. We didn't ever see ourselves as a, a pop radio band. Mm-hmm. Uh, and look, I would never complain about that, that song sure. being a hit because it just it kept us going. It allowed us. To, it allowed me to make solo records. You know? Yeah, yeah. My favorite uh, Delamitri song is "Tell Her This," which I think was yeah. the next single after that. Tell her not to go Something in my mind freezes up from time to time. Tell her not to cry. I just got scared, that's all. Tell her I'll be by her side All she has to do is call All she has to do is call Tell her the chips are down Yeah, it was, yeah. Did you... Um, now, you know, I remember hearing that song on alternative radio, whereas Roll to Me was playing, being played in dentist offices and everywhere else. That's right, yeah. You know, and came up. <laughs> right. So I'm wondering if, was it just that fast when Roll to Me, now you, it had a long tail. That song yeah. lasted a long time. Yeah. But did you, were you noticing that the A&M people that you loved and respected so much, are, are you thinking, why are you not? getting tell her this on the dentist office station what's going on here or do you just are you oblivious to what's really happening i mean that no, no, didn't didn't really bother us i mean as long as we could tour we were happy okay uh, and, it, and we we knew that that the role to me being on pop radio was going to be an anomaly you know because we we very rarely write songs like that it just kind of came out that way and so i mean we were no i mean we were perfectly happy about all that you know okay okay I was curious if you felt like they didn't work hard enough to sustain the success of the no, and, and also as long as Roll Team was still on pop radio, that was it was keeping us afloat, you know. Yeah. Okay. Even if it wasn't, even if it wasn't selling concert tickets, which it wasn't, you know. Mm. Interesting, really. So when uh, uh, Suckers Parade comes out, is there a lot of expectation or build up on your end on the label's end like guys we're going to do it again we've got yeah. the, we've got the formula and it's going to happen not where yeah. it's at is going to hit big or are you shooting in the dark
No, uh, we made that record in a hurry because Al Cafiro, the, the guy that ran A&M in the 90s that we really got on with. And he, he, he sort of had carried a real torch for us because uh, we'd met him in Scotland when he was like the marketing manager or something. And he was supposed to meet Simple Minds. He was supposed to go to their studio. And uh, and for some reason, they they cancelled him. So he came to our studio. I was like, hey, we've got another UK act here. I'll go and see them. Mm-hmm. And we really got on with, with Al. You know, a really intelligent man. And again, not a bullshit artist. So I, I remember having con- me and Al having conversations. And we honestly thought that Norris Art was going to be a big hit. And we spent a lot of money making a very weird video. Uh, we were we were really convinced. And like week one, nobody added it. It was just nobody wanted it. And it was like, oh oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so and at that, you know, you know, it, in in retrospect, we probably made the record in a bit a bit too much of a hurry. I think of that as being a bit of an underwritten record. A, there's too many songs on it, and I think there's too many substandard songs on it. And I think we could probably have spent six more months writing a few more things mm. for it. And we also made a fatal mistake of leaving um, uh, a song called Sleep Instead of Teardrops, which is a, a really good ballad, which has become really popular over the years. That was recorded for that record and we left it off the album because we didn't think it was power pop enough and mm. that was a bit of a mistake. So yeah, I thought everything was, had gone really well, Waking Hours changed everything, Twisted, I mean Twisted did really well um, and you know, either side, both sides of the Atlantic, mm-hmm. but some other Suckers Parade was a kind of, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it got tricky after that, you know, we got forced into putting a greatest hits out we didn't want to do. We demoed 75 songs and they wouldn't let us in the studio. So it's like everything is so easy when you're on the up and when you're on the down, it's just really tricky. You know, oh, That hurts just thinking about it. Yeah, I um, I mean, as much as I love everything you do, this, the Parade album to me is a little samey. You know, yeah. there's not enough kind of dynamic between the songs. Yeah, we designed it to be... We sort of abandoned, we abandoned the idea of making these sort of variety records, which is what we'd done, with the, uh, certainly with the Waking Hours and Twisted. We just wanted to make, it was really influenced by Teenage Fan Club, you know, mm-hmm. you mentioned them earlier. We just wanted to make a really in-your-face, yeah. really compressed electric guitar pop record because we didn't think, we sort of wanted to hear that on the radio. And maybe in our arrogance, we thought, oh, we'll 
will probably get on the radio, you know. So I think it might have been written a little bit too quickly and maybe a little too cynically. Mm. But yeah, I agree with you. It was sort of designed to sound all the same. So I, I don't, I don't sort of take that as a as a negative criticism. Right. But I think in in, re- in retrospect, we should have been we'd have been more careful. But A and M were really hungry for more yeah more songs. Yeah. They were really hungry for another album. I bet. Okay, so one of the questions that came up a lot from several of the Patreon people, first of all, was the difference between how you differentiate between your solo career and the band. And I think you kind of clarified that with just, yeah. you're right, the songs that come out on your solo albums are not Delamitri songs. They're very personal to you. The other thing, though, is that how Lousy With Love is this great kind of B-side compilation album that a lot of people feel like the quality is still there to have been its own standalone Delamitri album. Why was it yeah. not... Is your quality control so so high that it didn't pass muster for you? What's the thinking? No, I mean, look, we made a lot of terrible B-sides as well, but we, I always had a thing about the Beatles and their EPs mm. and their B-sides, uh, which, you know, Oasis had the same thing. That, you know, like the first, like, eight Oasis B-sides were as good as anything on the albums. Yep, yep. So that was always a big thing. And the other thing was, you know, you got a major record company behind you. You do the album. Suddenly, they want six songs for the first single because there's so many formats. They want four songs for the second single. So you you end up writing an album again. But the great thing about that, it allows you to experiment, and you're in the studio self-producing, so you can kind of start pursuing what you want to sound like. And also, because I was very prolific in those days, so I had a lot of songs hanging around that weren't going to get played on stage and that weren't going to get onto an album having funding to go and make b-sides in a in a studio on your own without a producer that was just a chance to stretch out a bit and try different things so that there was no real pressure on them you know uh, and a lot of the time we would i mean not always but a lot of the time we would go that's you know we, we were really proud of those things i mean there's no reason why i mean i don't see why you shouldn't put your best material out in different formats i mean our thing was always the album's got to work even if song seven isn't a good song if it fits there on the album it goes on uh and it you know it's like leaving sleep instead of teardrops off and putting it on a b-side we, we just thought well it's gonna fuck up the album because it's so slow and we're not we're wanting we're trying to make a power pop record so it'll be a great b-side and what's wrong with that and yeah. you know people i mean new people listen to the b-sides you know you and say- also the end the interesting thing about streaming now, sorry, John, but the interesting no, thing about streaming now is that, uh, you know, you can stick an album out, you can stick extra tracks out, and then years later you'll discover that something that wasn't on the album is a much bigger streaming hit than anything else. You know, it doesn't matter what you made a video for, it doesn't matter what the radio played, people just make up their own minds. And that's one of the things about streaming that I really like, because you find out what people are playing again and again which you usually only find out by going on the road and hearing people shout for something. True. So uh, I quite like all that. It just it puts more power in the audience's hands. They they choose what the hit is, you know. That's and when, when I say hit, I mean I just I mean things that people are still listening to like yeah. five years after the album. That makes sense. And you talking so, I mean, you're right. Oasis's Master Plan album, there's no dip in quality no. with that compared to everything else they put out, and they I'm yeah. sure meant it that way. You know? Yeah, they, they for the they were inspired by exactly the, the same reason. You know, this, yeah. it was it was just it was the Beatles B sides that were just you know like Rain. You know, it's just one yes. of the best Beatles songs ever, and it was yeah. a B side. Yeah, 
or, or yes. this boy. There's just there's loads of things, you know. That when they, it was only really at the very end they started making really appalling pieces. <laughs> but uh, it's just true of all of us, I think. You know, yeah. true of Oasis, true of Delamitri. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of uh, the other okay. thing we were really hung, the other thing we were really hung up on was bands in the sixties often put. If you think of um, in the case of the Beatles, if you think about. Um, Penny Lane, Strawberry Fields, they would often put standalone singles out before or after albums and just to kind of keep the kettle boiling, really. And that was a total thing of the past in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And we managed to persuade the, we managed to persuade AM after Waking Hours had come out and done really well to put a sort of one-off single out. And we had a plan to do that between every album, but then we, we were foiled by the uh, strictures of what was what is and isn't allowed in the so-called music industry. Mm-hmm. You did do that for the soccer song though, right? Um, yeah. Don't come home too soon or... So long, go on and do your best. Let have whiskey on its breath The world may not be shaking yet But you might prove them wrong Even long shots make Yeah, yeah, that was a that was a one-off single. Um, but yeah, we we would like to have done more of those, but we, we weren't allowed. Oh. <laughs> it's kind of, I mean, if you think about, I was thinking about it, getting ready to talk to you, and I thought it's actually kind of a miracle that a band as uh, I don't, you're not like world uh, overtakers. You're still no. kind of a little no. sweet little band. Delamitri even got the the opportunity to write a you know a football song like that it, it yeah, doesn't I mean, normally that, go to the oasis of the world well that was that was less of an opportunity more that i wrote the song just privately for as a bit of a laugh actually really I just thought oh, i'll write it with the scotland football team but i'll make it sound like it's uh it's a european sending a relative over over the atlantic to go and find a fortune in america and i really wrote it for the american audience mm-hmm. so they would think that but I would know it was kind of written about a bloody football team. But then <laughs> other people started hearing it and 
A&M got wind of it and they were oh great you know this will get us on the radio because we hadn't been playing the radio on the last records so uh, yeah it became this big machine and it was I found the whole experience really frissy negative I could see that uh, um, so it, it wasn't it wasn't written to be the official song for Scotland going to the World Cup it was just written as a kind of cheesy love song to your football team really okay and also the other thing was nobody else wrote one mm-hmm. so there were a few stories in the Scottish press of like, wait, 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 we're a big pop band here. Uh, uh, they were trying to write one. I said, like, please, please, that be let that be the official song and not ours. But we were kind of railroaded into it because it was deemed as being commercially advantageous. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we got we got wrapped up in the whole sporting event, which was just awful. And oh god, god, I really wish it had never happened. Yeah. Um, okay, I gotta uh, I gotta get nerdy for a second. You mentioned streaming. I don't know if it's just because it's an American thing, but only a couple of songs from Can You Do Me Good are on Spotify. Lousy yeah. is not on Spotify. The live yeah. album is not on Spotify. Do you know why? Do you know, are you in charge of this? Uh, no, I don't know why, because Universal, the, the behemoth um, music company, or Gordon's what kind of a company they are now, Universal, they own all the rights to those things. So, uh, and, and we don't even have any contacts at Universal anymore, so we, we don't have a clue what's going on there. You know, on the when we when we got back together in 2014 for the sort of reunion tour, Universal re-released. They did sort of deluxe packages of the first two albums and maybe the first three albums. So we put out, we put out on CD all the B sides that hadn't been released, you know, re-released anyway. Uh, but they they sort of died a death pretty quickly so i, I don't know whether that yeah i don't yeah to be honest okay. i don't know what's going on there okay. i didn't know that actually that's that's yeah. quite frustrating i try to i still collect physical media cds at least whenever i can because i love them yeah there were some of the things that i hadn't couldn't get to when they weren't on streaming either and yeah. those are them so I, I thought that was kind of a bummer yeah that's kind of annoying mm-hmm. uh i'll i'll see if i can do something about that thank <laughs> you for telling me about that john sure sure Oh, speaking of music that, uh, kind of odd music that you didn't think any, the world would hear, I only just yesterday learned about Uncle Devil Show. What is that? There's a bimbo in the limo and the bimbo is me. I keep the mirrored windows down so everyone can see. I'm terminally wankered with a poodle on my knee. There's a bimbo in the limo and the bimbo is me. There's a bimbo. Sad celebrity, I'm a worthless little nobody from digital TV. There's a bimbo in the limo, and the bimbo is me. Hi, everybody, I'm your friend. Have you seen my panel game? Guess my asshole for a
is there going to be more of it? That's nothing to do with me. That's a guy called Jason Barr and uh, Langton Herring, I believe, and a drummer called Terence that just, I, apparently one of the singers sounds like me, but that's, that's not me. That guy's taking the piss. <laughs> okay, okay. We're going to keep this up. It's like the Wilburys. Um, yeah, one of, the, one, of the, one of my listeners was like, yeah, they, they, they change their names. They, they go by Uncle Devil Show. What's the story there? And I had never heard of this until yesterday so okay okay we're gonna keep it uh all right i guess that has nothing to do with you i deny any involvement in that project okay okay um okay we haven't talked that much about fatal mistakes yet first of all why was now the time for delamitri to come back together did you just write a bunch of songs that didn't sound like solo songs no we did it was very deliberate we when we did the re, the comeback tour in 2014 we took an executive decision not to do any new songs because mm-hmm. uh, I had a few songs lying around. Ian had a few songs lying around and we thought that's not really the point. This is a kind of, this is a pleasant trip down memory lane. Let's remember the nineties, you know, it's 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, but then when we thought oh, we'll probably do more gigs and, uh, and we ended up doing another tour in 2018, a really short tour. We thought this is going to be boring for not doing new songs. I mean, boring for us. And it'd be hard not just repeating what we did in 2014, which is like a big tour show doing everything from each era of, of the band. So then what are we writing for? Are we writing for a tour? Are we writing for an album? And Ian said, well, I think maybe we should think about making an album. And I, said, I wasn't very sure about it. Actually, our drummer really wanted to do, to do some recordings. And I was like, you know, because I, I, you know, I really like, a lot of those records, I really like Twisted. I mean, I've got, you know, I can find fault in, in a lot of the songwriting and I can find fault in the production, but I'll, I'll listen to them, you know, every couple of years and I'll go, you know, that's, they're, they're actually okay. You know, these are okay records. And Twisted especially has got a lot of energy. The guitars are really well worked out. Uh, there's a lot of sort of dual guitar acts in that record, which I really like. And I just thought, I don't think guys in their 50s can do that. You know, I don't think, We've, I don't think you have the same energy and passion for work. And also, you don't have the same amount of time to rehearse. I mean, we used to rehearse for months and months and months. So I didn't think it was doable. And then I got my head around it because I tried to write Delamitri songs and it took me a while, but eventually all the things I go, well, yeah, you know. And the other thing was we decided we'll record the album with the guys that played the 2014 and 2018 tour because obviously we had lots of different lineups. But Ian, Ian said, no, we should use that lineup. And that made it a lot easier for me because I thought, right, I'm writing songs for those guys. I know what they can do. Mm-hmm. So I know what's going to work. So that made it a lot easier. So once I got about 20 songs under my belt, I thought, okay, this might this might happen. But mm-hmm. it took me about three years just to, uh, mm-hmm. to to write enough songs that I felt confident enough that I could go into the rehearsal room and say, let's try this. Okay. Uh, I love it. And um, I'm curious, you know, we like, what is the fate of a song like It's Feelings?
that's such a great tune and i think that might even be i don't know what the singles are but i think that might be a single like does that is it going to get played on the radio like it deserves to where does it go well i mean it's been played in the radio actually much to our surprise uh again we just like cooking vinyl the label decide what was going to be a single so they stuck out a streaming only track close rise and think of england which we did a little video for and then they sort of it was between its feelings and you can't go back and they pumped for its feelings and look they, they made the right decision because it's on it's on commercial radio and it's on Good. sort of it's on mainstream radio in this in this country uh i mean whether that'll make any difference or not i don't know but uh yeah i mean i'm really over the moon to be back in the radio because I've, I've not had a song i've written played in the radio for about 25 years uh, or a new song you know yeah so that's yeah. great that, that, that that's great so somebody's made the right decision <laughs> that was the last thing we wrote on this record we, we were looking for something like that that had a kind of acoustic guitar riff that mm-hmm. had a bit of a kind of americana vibe about it that was that was quite buoyant musically you know mm-hmm. So as, as soon as we finished writing that, we thought, right, we're done. We've got we've got enough to to make a Daily Mitchell record. Yeah. I mean, um, the problem with me is that when I'm writing for Daily Mitchell, I write six ballads to one mm-hmm. guitar uh, up guitar song. You know, because really? it, I find ballads I find ballads way easier to write. Uh, and I think the older you get, the slower your tempos get. So I have to write a lot of songs to get anywhere near thinking I've got a Daily Mitchell record obviously when you make solo records that doesn't matter you can sort of do what you want yeah that is so fascinating that you say that because i have i mean i kind of noticed that as somebody who's tracking delimitri it's like wow they as they've gotten older they've gotten softer quieter a little bit but there are moments like i love again the lyrics i got it in front of me um the opening stanza of its feelings and then all the sickness all the bruises all the shit that no one chooses Bring it on uh, in its disguises. I'll take the knockouts with the prizes. Again, that's so you. You are so good at writing that kind of stuff. But this song's a little peppier. And so I'm glad to hear that yeah. you make room for those kinds of songs or you still strive for them. I, think we felt, I thought we felt we had a duty if we were making an album under the moniker Delamitri to do that. It wouldn't have been right to have done, to after so long, to have done something really down in the mouth so we tried to keep it as bright as we could although when when we sequenced it i originally sequenced it with 11 songs and i kind of i kind of front loaded it with the, the kind of rockiest things that that, that we'd recorded but it, the sequence didn't really work and then ian resequenced it and he put two more songs on it which i, w- I wasn't expecting an uptempo one and another ballad which i didn't think would work and it did work mm. and again it's so much about sequencing for us it's like what follows what, and that, that's quite a, uh, it's a really intangible process that you think, I mean, I was convinced for, you know, two years that we're going to open this album with musicians in beer because that's a real statement. Musicians 
You stand on the vanquished, your feet on their chests, posing like starlets in bulletproof fists. Your wife doesn't love you, she's sick of the And then we could never, re- we could never really get a mix that was sort of in your face enough, uh, and it kind of, so it kind of slipped down the running order. So it, it's the sequence and the, the set, if you like, like a DJ set that predicts what goes on there. So that's why sometimes you leave, you do leave really great songs off, off records. And as I said before, you don't have to, you don't have to put your best songs on the record. You just put the, the ones that that like each other and then get yeah. on with each other. <laughs> Uh, it's so funny you're saying this because the thing that I, I love streaming too, but the thing I miss most about, I miss making girls mixtapes and mix CDs, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I have to say, I was like the master at that. And especially yeah. a tape, because you got to have two first tracks and two last tracks. And yeah. it would, you'd pick what, I, I'm here to tell anyone who doesn't know, um, the Sunday's version of Wild Horses is maybe the greatest last track on a mixtape for a girl ever. But anyway, I just, the thought of like, ooh, this song needs to flow into this one. Yeah, And, uh, you know, how many soft ones and hard ones do you put next to each other and stuff like that? No, right. I, I, used to, I used to make up mixtapes for the, the restaurant I worked in because I had a, I, you know, I had a decent record collection. Mm-hmm. I used to love doing that. I got, I got a few of them out recently. Um, and they were, you know, really poppy because it was, to keep the, I worked in the kitchen, but my sister worked in the floor. So it was to keep them up. Uh, and God, there's so much cheesy stuff on those things, you know. So I used to go and buy pop singles just because I, I could tape them sure. and put them on these mixtapes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a kind of a shame that that's a, a thing in the past. And you're right, there's, 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 there's a, an, an opening and closing track on both sides of a, of a C90. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. I, uh, yeah, I miss those days. I would spend hours stewing over what should follow what on one of those um speaking of which i want to mention i live in denver and yeah. my understanding is that denver is a real hot spot for you and unfortunately yeah. i didn't move here and become a delamitri fan until the glory days were over and so this was a good place for you i guess it was we always played the boulder theater and i think the, the, that station the mountain played us quite long we did a lot of kind of sessions for them and uh, yeah, I forgot about Denver actually because I always think because we never played in Denver, we always played in Boulder. Boulder, but that yeah, that was quite a big theatre for us. Yeah, it's funny you just get these. It's not funny. It's to do with radio. You know, if a radio station starts playing deeper cuts, as they say, uh, then it really helps build an audience. Whereas if you're just if you just got one song in a pop station, it doesn't build an audience at all. It's just it's for people to do the yeah. vacuuming to or or you know chop onions to. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm speaking of which I'm originally from Salt Lake City and I was curious if that you were talking about c- cities that were sort of beachheads for you. Did Salt Lake yeah. City factor in as good or bad in any way? I, we we did I think we only did it once Salt Lake City. I remember Utah being one of the beautiful beautiful uh, parts mm-hmm. of the world I've ever seen. We did a, we did a, we must have played to like 400 people in a club 
Mm. And so they said, I don't think we did it more than once, though. Okay. I think maybe just to do with, with routing. Yeah. And I don't think we did. We didn't do any radio promo there, as far as I remember. Yeah. So we, we had a day off when we played there uh, and went to the club we were playing in the night before the gig uh, and met a bunch of local guys. It was That was really interesting, actually. Mm. Um, but that's that's all I know about yeah. Salt Lake City. Okay. Okay. I was curious. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, not a... a it's better now, but when I was growing up, especially high school and college, bands like you didn't come through often enough, you know? Yeah. So there were some people that, like I saw Peter Murphy so many times in concert and Matthew Sweet so many times because yeah. they made it a point to stop there on their way to bigger and better places. And, uh, yeah. but not everyone did. And, uh, you know, cause it was kind of podunkville for a lot of people. So. And it was, a, it was all, be a routing thing as well. Cause we usually just went straight along the South so we didn't, we only once went up to Salt Lake City. I think we might be going north or something or taking a different route because usually we just started in the east, down to Florida, through Louisiana, mm -hmm. into Texas, then, you know, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, California, and then back up to the top, Pacific Northwest, across, across the top. Or sometimes in reverse, you'd go from, you know, Minneapolis out to right. Vancouver and, and down to um, Seattle and Vancouver and all that. Right. But yeah, probably a probably a routing thing as much as anything. That's what I hear. Yeah. Okay. If you can tell me your top three Beatles songs, because it sounds like yeah. they're your number one. Yeah. Tell me real quick what your top three Beatles songs are. I'll be back from Hard Day's Night, Strawberry Fields Forever, and I mean I'll just go for She Said She Said from Revolver, yeah. which is kind of obvious, but there you go. Okay. Okay. I usually they go... all Lennon? They're, they're all Lennon songs. <laughs> Damn it. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I'm a bigger Paul fan, but Tomorrow Never Knows is my number one. Um, it's All Too Much is my number two. Yeah, and number great. three is either usually um, you got to hide your love away or Norwegian Wood. And so I also have more Johns in my near the top, but I prefer yeah. Paul overall. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love them. I love them both. And I, I've got, I mean, they, and they, they both did, you know, they both made really embarrassing music at points in their solo career, in their solo career as well. I mean, I, you know, a lot of my friends are mad Beatles heads. I mean, bigger Beatles heads than, than me or Mike Gamala or, or you are, maybe. Uh -huh. uh, and they, they, they know all the solo stuff, you know. I mean, they're really, as, they're as passionate about the, um, the obscure Paul McCartney's solo stuff and, um, as they are about the Beatles, which is kind of weird, but I'm, I'm, there is gold in them hills, you know. I've, yeah, I've, I've listened to a few things recently by McCartney that have really, you know, taken my head off. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's also a really great Ringo album, which I only discovered quite recently, which I think might just be called Ringo. It's got, I'm the, it's got a song called I'm the Greatest on it, which yeah. is uh -huh. written, by jo written by John Lennon, I think, or co-written, uh, which is just really funny. Interesting. Um, I don't yeah. have a lot of Ringo. I, um, I have Buku of Blues, which I love that album. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, I don't, I haven't sought out a lot of Ringo. I probably should. Yeah. yeah I, I listened to a bunch of Ringo because I was asked to do a, a kind of charity concert of Beatles solo stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I was going to do Mull of Kintyre. Never, I didn't do it in the end. Okay. Um, I mean, see, I, I, I really love Mull of Kintyre. People think it's really cheesy, but I think it's a great tune. Of course. It's just of course a it is. great tune. It really is. It really is. Okay. One more question. I um, am sort of fascinated with Simple Minds, and I yeah. wondered 
what is a from what is a Scotsman indie rock Scotsman like you? What's their opinion of Simple Minds? Good or bad? Well, I, I, well, I really loved the first three albums, especially the third album, Empires and Dance. Oh, I mean, for nice. a couple of years, Simple Minds just sounded like the future. Um, they were really progressive. They were writing songs in really interesting ways. They were using synths in really interesting ways and guitar effects. They were really a bit like Heaven Up To You, but Echo and the Bunny Men and mm-hmm. some of the Joy Divisions and stuff. They were really bass riff driven, mm-hmm. which really really appealed to me being a bass player. Uh, and I, me- I remember seeing them after they signed to Virgin, so uh, it'd been after the first album, um, maybe maybe after the second album actually. Uh, a great club here called Tiffany's, and they were—you could just tell they were world beaters, you know. Mm-hmm. So they—they they were a huge engine of um, uh, inspiration for a, a lot of bands, even bands like us that, that were really directly inspired by the postcard scene. Their their success and their uh, the fact that they were so progressive for a while—I mean, a bit like the Associates or something—and mm-hmm. um, they were really glossy, you know. So like mm-hmm. glamorous women liked them, you know. Because they had this kind of European craftworky sort of vibe about them, so yeah, they were. Uh, I I, I, re- I really loved them. Up to, I, by the time they got to New Gold Dream and they started to get really, really popular, I kind of lost track of them a wee bit. Um, and I was listening to, to other things, but yeah, I, I listened to Empire and Dance recently, and it's still a really great. Record. It is so good. Yeah. yeah, I love them, and I love them enough. That I find all of it really interesting, the latter days. Yeah. But there are so many people who are diehards that, after usually around Once Upon a Time or um, yeah. Sparkle in the Rain, they just they, it's a different band after that, and they're not interested. But yeah, I love I, them I, enough I, that it carries me through all that. Yeah, I mean, I heard something a couple of years ago from one of the new records, which was really good. It was kind of like a T Rexy thing. And I was like, oh, that's really good, you know. And because they're simple minds, you know, it's, you know, if that was like a bunch of 21 year olds it would probably be all over the radio you know yeah yeah agreed well uh thanks for uh, thanks for chatting with me justin oh one last i want to i want to mention we mentioned mike gamal his his uh charity joey's song you contribute yeah. too often is there something you want to say or a little plug for joey's song uh well joey's song is a, a, a charity that does a lot of a lot of good work helping people with uh, uh kids with severe epilepsy and epilepsy is this kind of silent silent killer it's a very unfashionable cause epilepsy it still has this terrible stigma attached to it for reasons that nobody can can understand so um yeah it's a it's a a great thing to support joey so yeah i will put the link in the show notes to this one but i want to make sure it got mentioned thank you justin i've been wanting to do this for six years now and we finally made it happen thank you for all the good you've put in the world you're the best and thank you for giving me so much time. I love and, it. And, and doing your research. Oh, well, that's the easy part. I love you. It's not hard. <laughs> All right, there you have it. Justin Curry. I love that guy. And I love that conversation. And it really reminded me of how much I loved Elamitri. And I hope it did for all of you, too. I want to close it out with one of my other favorite songs of theirs. This is Move Away, Jimmy Blue. And it was on that second album, Waking Hours, where they really found themselves in the late 80s. And uh, it sort of just progressed from there. I wanted to ask him about it, but I sort of chickened out. I I didn't want to take up any more of his time. Anyway, um, we also talked about that charity, Joey's Song, at the end of this episode. There's a link to it right here in the show notes. If you're wanting to give, if you're wanting to support charities like this from our friends, please do. 
Give anything, give whatever you can. It's a noble cause. Um, and again, thanks to everybody who's been asking for Justin Curry over the years. We finally made it happen. And I hope, hope, hope everyone will give a spin to Fatal Mistakes because it's really a special album. It's beautiful. Everything he does is beautiful, you know? All right, next week's guest is another Scott. And uh, I'm just going to leave it at that. So anyway, I'm excited for next week's too. It's more punk rock. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man, for everything that you do. Thanks, buddy, for doing this with me. You guys know how to find us by now. You can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. And if you're new to the show, go back into the archives. If you like Delamitri and Justin, you're bound to find oodles of episodes that you would also like. Okay? Thanks, everybody. We love you. <laughs>